We live in a culture um, that's increasingly aware of misinformation. No matter where you live on this planet, there's a reality in the 24 hours a day news cycle and the onslaught of various social media platforms and podcasts that there is partial truth, so much partial truth out there that we can never be sure if it's the real story. We can never be sure if what we're hearing is actually the truth of the situation. And you feel it, don't you? You know that you listen to something, you're like, yeah, I don't know if that's true. I mean, it's certainly not the whole story. There's, there's misinformation. Uh, misinformation is simply being misinformed about something. It's, it's like one didn't do their homework. They didn't see all sides or whatever. But we also live in a day when we are increasingly aware of something that has become very popularized, the word not misinformation, but disinformation. This is not simply being misinformed and humble enough to admit you were mistaken. Rather, disinformation has an agenda attached to it. Misinformation is being wrong by mistake. Disinformation is being wrong on purpose with an ulterior motive. And the extent of disinformation in our world has caused significant division in all corners of this world and caused significant doubting as to every bit of potential truth that is out there in any given situation. So people are left in this world to not know really what is true. Matter of fact, they're left, and maybe there's some of, all of us to some extent might consider, like as we're listening to things, I just, I just can't buy that, I don't know. And this generation, unlike any other generation in history, has literally hundreds <coughs> and even thousands of examples of not simply misinformation, but disinformation, and has resulted in an increasing cynicism, not just skepticism, but cynicism concerning the reality of truth. Does truth exist? How do I know? Because nobody can tell me the truth. I keep hearing this and this and this, and I'm hearing stuff inside of myself, and I don't, I don't know what to believe. How do I know it's true? <coughs> Misinformation and especially disinformation are extremely unsafe and absolutely destructive. And so I bring all that up, um, not to sidetrack us into the disinformation in our world, but to, to help us to understand that this text we're in this morning specifically speaks about misinformation and disinformation as it connects to Jesus and who He is and what He's done and how one can find eternal peace and life that is at the root of real joy that we all long to experience. And Paul addresses this straight away to begin cutting through all the noise and cut to the chase regarding the truth of our salvation. And all this misinformation and disinformation um, does not only come from outside, it comes, it wells up within us. We have a, an enemy in our flesh, we have an enemy in the world, and we have an enemy in the devil, all coming against us. So Paul addresses the church, those who have entrusted their lives to Christ this morning with the purpose of reminding us. Not just reminding the Philippians, but reminding Sovereign Grace Church Dayton, steadying us, rightly informing us of the immovable and unassailable joy of our salvation. And the point I want to consider this morning is this, that the accurate repetition of the true gospel safely informs the joy we're meant to experience as Christians. 
And to drive that point home, hopefully, I want to consider three things from the text this morning. First thing I want to think about is the reality that there is safety in gospel repetition. Secondly, that there is danger in gospel disinformation. And third, that there is wonder in gospel joy. Um, First point, there's safety in gospel repetition. Verse 1, Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. This word finally is not necessarily, you know, like when I say in uh, certain times in a sermon where I say a final point, and then I go on for two or three more points. This is what Paul does as well here. He's like, finally, and then he says finally again in chapter 4. So, okay, which is it? Is, is this the final point, or is that the final point? The, the reality is the word is like, um, kind of like, and, and, and on top of that, this. That's, that's this sense. On, on top of that, this. And so he says, he says, on top of what I've just said, uh, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. After you've done all things, rejoice in the Lord, that reality. And, and so he's writing to brothers, he's writing to the Philippian Christians, and, and though he uses the term brothers, it can certainly be inferred that he is writing to both male and female members of the body of Christ in Philippi. Consider Paul's first connection in Philippi back in Acts 16, verse 13. He says, on, Luke writes, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together, um, the, the, the brethren, but they're women. So don't get caught up on the word brothers or sisters here. It's just a reality of like Christians where Paul's writing to the Christians, women like Lydia, who were introduced to in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Obviously, at at this point, men have been added, men like Epaphroditus that we talked about last week. The point is, this is a church family. They're they're, they're brothers, they're they're sisters, they're close, they're they're blood relatives by the blood of Christ. And so he's writing to the church family in Philippi here, and he says, rejoice in the Lord. Um, It's a common refrain throughout Scripture, it's a common refrain through the letter to the Philippian church. But is it not something that you and I have become so familiar with? Rejoice in the Lord. Yep. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Yep. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. We we write a song about it back in 1937 or something. Rejoice in the Lord. And rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And yet we walk in, our heart's not rejoicing. So I want to slow down just a bit and consider together what it is Paul's saying in this short little quote. He's stating to them that they can rejoice in the Lord, in who he says he is as the one who never changes. They can rejoice in the Lord. They can find the rejoicing at Jesus. We're looking for joy. We're looking to rejoice, and we're looking in all the wrong places. We'll never find it in the other places. So he says, rejoice in the Lord, or rejoice again at the Lord, at the location of the Lord, and the one who is immovable, in the one who is unshakable, is the, in, in the one who is unassailable. And I love that word unassailable. When, when was the last time any of us used the word unassailable? Like, what in the world does that mean exactly? It means that no one 
Absolutely no one can disprove who Jesus is. No one can take away Jesus from being who he is. And you might say, well, that's not true. I mean, lots of people question who Jesus is, and I'll say, true. Lots of people question who Jesus is. All of us at one point questioned who Jesus is. Some in this room today, right now in this moment, question who Jesus is. And that's a, that's a reality. But you cannot disprove him. He's unassailable. You might question who he is, and you think this whole Christianity thing is a, is a joke, uh, but that's just simply what you've come to believe. It's the disinformation that you've settled on Frankly, because I know this from experience, you're so satisfied with your love relationship with yourself. Jesus Christ, as we spent over two years looking intently at through our time in the Gospel of Luke, is precisely who he says he is. And though anyone is free to question him, um, that's an option. None, none will succeed in disproving him. People may not accept him for who he is, but they cannot strip him of who he is. He is unassailable, 100% untouchable. And so with that in mind, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'll rejoice in that which is unassailable. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice at the Lord rather than the fleeting circumstances of your life, of my life. Steve Bice, rejoice in the Lord, and not just simply in this or this, but in the Lord who is immovable, unshakable. Rather than being angry or confused by the impoverished information about Jesus that you've settled for, rejoice in the Lord. Rather than growing skeptical or cynical towards him on account of those you are listening to, perhaps it's a podcast, perhaps it's a website, perhaps it's an opinion piece, perhaps it's a magazine article or Facebook group or TikTok post or, or it's friends, or it's just simply the voice inside your head. The fact is, Jesus Christ is the way. Jesus Christ is the truth. Jesus Christ is the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. Don't be misinformed that something else is true. Don't buy into the disinformation that you have currently been falling for. And listen, may that reality when, as, when, when you look at the government, when you look at across this world, when you look at all the people who don't know Christ, they're settling for disinformation. They've been misinformed, surely, but they're also settling for disinformation. I mean, worse, eternally, infinitely worse than the disinformation that we see on the media or from Russia or whatever, however, however you connect up disinformation in this world, infinitely worse is the disinformation that Jesus is not who He says He is. He is absolutely who He says He is. So find your joy in Him. Find your joy in Him. He is entirely trustworthy. But Paul also tells us to rejoice in the Lord by, by, by way of not simply rejoicing in who He is, but in what He has done, and what He's currently doing, and what He will one day yet do. Listen, the, the reality is who Jesus is ties in, like it makes what He's done important. And not just important, but absolutely vital. So Jesus being who He is and Jesus doing what He did go together. And so rejoicing in the Lord and who He is and what He's done 
gospel repetition. Something like this. For our sake, he, that is God the Father, made him, Jesus, the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, you and I might become the righteousness of God. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus, the real, historical Son of God, unassailable, unable to be disproved, disbelieved, sure, not touched. He came to set us free. He came to set us free from sin and from death and from Satan, the enemy of our souls, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be what? Saved. Saved. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the penalty of our sins. Saved to experience real joy, real gospel hope, real gold. Not settling for little scrapings of whatever kind of pyrite that is. Fool's gold. He is absolutely amazing. I was made aware of this, this, this week, afresh, on Thursday afternoon. I believe this wholeheartedly. And that gives me no glory whatsoever, but I say thank you, Lord, that, that I, I believe this. I see that you are who you say you are, and I know I couldn't have seen unless he moved on my heart. So it caused great celebration upstairs in that office as I sat there by myself. Joy. But boy, oh boy, do we so quickly forget it. And so did the Philippians. And so is literally every Christian for the last 2,000 years. We just tend to forget it. <coughs> Paul writes about this good news again because he knows that him included, along with all of us, we just tend to buy into some level of disinformation. We don't believe. We start to question or we wonder. Throughout his letters, throughout his preaching, it's the good news, the gospel message that's certainly on his tongue. And he says this in verse 1, to write the same things to you, man, it's no trouble for me at all, and it's safe for you. This is what he wants to talk about. Of all the things Paul wants to talk about, it's Christ crucified that makes the top of his list. This, what, this was what he did. This is why he lived his life in the way he did. He wanted to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ because there's nothing greater. And he knows that repetition is good. Repetition is not to be despised. Repetition is safe. It's not simply, well, it's a simple gospel. Again, here we go again, hearing the same thing again. He's like, it's the biggest thing ever. It's the most important thing. It is the main thing. It is the primary thing. It is a matter, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, of first importance. Not speaking of rote, same old, same old, but what he has spoken of and what he's yet going to speak of bears repeating. One reason to celebrate the person and work of Jesus on the cross at this table that we'll do in just a little bit of time. 
And for Paul, it's just simply no trouble at all because it just like is right in his wheelhouse. Is it right in your wheelhouse? They may have forgotten what needs to be repeated. Look, friends, look around you. The person next to you may have forgotten, may have misplaced the beauty and joy of the gospel. What do they need? Certainly don't need my anger. Certainly don't need your frustration. What we need from each other, husbands, wives, kids, parents, co-members, Christian to Christian, what we need is gospel empathy with each other, reminding each other of the gospel over and over and over and over and over again. There is joy in the message of the gospel. And that joy is easily misplaced and forgotten. And, and if you're like me, you feel that. You feel dry spiritually from time to time. Do you, do you, maybe it's been a long time since you felt anything spiritually. Do you wonder if this Christianity thing is worth it? Do you wonder if you've done enough or will ever do enough to truly be accepted by God? Listen, Paul, Paul is intentionally reminding us of this gospel in this text because he knows that there's not only misinformation coming at us, but primarily disinformation, always accosting us from inside our hearts, always accosting us from inside our culture, from our culture, and always accosting us from the enemy of our souls to the point that if possible, though we, you and I are in danger of shipwreck, of our faith becoming shipwreck and us departing the Lord we love, being in danger of drowning in the waves of unbelief. So Paul, graciously, you read Paul over and over again, and he's going to come back to the cross again and again and again. Who Jesus is and what he's done. Who Jesus is and what he's done. What is it that you need to know? Who Jesus is, what he's done. What your friends need to know? Who Jesus is what he's done. What does the unbelieving friend need to know? Who Jesus is, what he's done. Whether we would not go into such waves of unbelief, Paul warns us that there is danger in gospel disinformation. Point two, verses two and three. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, typically for the Jewish person in those days, everybody but the Jew was a dog. They were a dog. They were outside the covenant. They were part of a different thing. They needed to come into the Jewish covenant, this, this covenant that God had made with his people. And so the way that they looked at Gentiles and Greeks and Romans and Scythians, barbarians, and on and on, they, they felt this way about them. And so, of course, the church in Philippi was made up of who? Primarily Gentiles, Greeks. That's where they were, Macedonia. And they were outside the Jewish faith. And of course, to be identified as a male Jew, a male child of God, one had to be circumcised. And so that meant that all the uncircumcised males in Philippi were not Jewish 
And so that meant they weren't children of God. That meant that they weren't accepted by God or loved by God. They weren't friends of God. And they were, in fact, to these Jewish people who were Paul's opposition, they were, these Gentiles were, in fact, dogs, wild scavengers who deserved no mercy. This was precisely what the Jewish opponents, again, that Paul had faced in the past in Philippi, believed and taught as one of the reasons why they caused a stir and they came from uh, different towns and, and damaged Paul greatly. They were saying that to be a child of God, one needed to be circumcised and brought into the Jewish faith. In other words, the gospel of grace that the apostle John stated so clearly in John chapter 1 verse 12 was not enough. Namely, this, that all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see anything about circumcision there? Nothing about circumcision in John chapter 1 verse 12. Well, the Jews said, well, nice try. That's not enough. Jesus is not enough. They believed he was insufficient in his sacrifice. They believed and taught and demanded that not only did one need to trust in Jesus, one needed to be also identified as Jew by way of circumcision, specifically if they were to be a real child of God. Paul, he he turned this dog identification right around. The dogs weren't the uncircumcised Gentiles who trusted in Jesus. The dogs to beware of were the Jewish opponents that taught a false gospel. Not simply misinformation, disinformation. A gospel that is worse than fool's gold. At least with fool's gold, you still got a pretty stone. With a false gospel, you have damnation. Paul goes on, he warns of the evildoers, evil workers. And so you can see what he's saying here is like, these guys, these dogs aren't just dogs. They're not just like scavengers. They're, they're not just destructive. They're evil, evil workers. And he compares them to, to some extent with Epaphroditus, who was his fellow worker, just, just in the text before us. He was his fellow worker and his a good, a good worker, one who, one who testified of the glory of Christ. These others are workers as well, but Paul states emphatically that they work evil, specifically that they were pressing the Gentiles to be circumcised so that they could become children of God, accepted in the beloved. It's, it's clear that what Paul sees behind the Jewish teacher's insistence on circumcision is a hidden trust in one's own works to gain a right standing with God rather than the work of Christ alone. And in light of that, they're rightly called evil. It's not just a misinformation, it's, it's evil disinformation. And then he goes on to talk about those who mutilate the flesh. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. He's, he's just saying, talking about the same guys over and over again dogs, evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh. He's not, he's not saying anything about the health benefits or not of circumcision or whatever. It all has to be wrapped up in the reality of this was an identifier with being loved by God and being in, being in the family of God. How do you get to be accepted by your creator? Well, Paul says in Christ alone, the Jews said, I don't think so. It's also this, circumcision. If you want to look at it a little bit more this week, you can look at Acts 15 and see the, see the 
Jewish council talking about it. Romans chapter 2, Galatians 5, Galatians 6. It's all over the place. It's the big deal at the day, during that day. And the best case scenario, again, is that these Jewish opponents were spreading misinformation even to the place of persecuting Christians for it. They simply believed this to be true, and so they continued teaching it. But make no mistake about it, all false teaching, any teaching that adds to or alters the narrow message of the gospel of Jesus Christ alone is disinformation, and it's a lie that is straight from the enemy of your souls. It's demonic, it's evil, and it is, as the Apostle John would say in 1 John, it is antichrist. And as Paul would say other places, it is no gospel at all. Fool's gold. Uh, demonic disinformation sits underneath every bit of gospel misinformation as it looks to find our salvation in someone other than or in addition to Jesus Christ alone. So important is this to Paul, he warns them three times consecutively at risk of these same guys hearing them, hearing Paul's letter. You might imagine Epaphroditus is going to take this letter back. He takes him back to the church, and the church is all together, which includes some of these people. And he starts reading it, and these people, you might, you might imagine that they get somewhat offended. And Paul's like, it doesn't, doesn't matter. The truth of Christ is at stake. People's salvation is at stake. Paul says to them, beware of the enemy of your soul, which is looking to steal your faith, to steal your joy, to steal your sense of being accepted and loved infinitely by your heavenly Father. Now, friends, listen, if you are questioning the Father's love for you today, that bought into some disinformation. Because in Christ, the Father has given you Christ, the Father, the, Jesus has given Himself for you, the Holy Spirit has made Him known to you. Father, Son, and Spirit has, have um, uh, like kind of conspired beautifully together, planned beautifully together to, to say to you, you're mine. I love you implicitly, fully, totally. You don't have to do anything else. Just trust me. Believe in me. Well, he not only warns them, he reminds them of what is in fact the truth. He says this in verse 3, for, because we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. These, these primarily Gentile Christians in Philippi needed to be reminded of the gospel of grace, just like you and I, because of the incessant demonic disinformation that's been blasted at them through the gospel misinformation of the Jewish teachers there. I don't know who we listen to, probably not the Jewish opposition party. Paul wanted them to know that they, the Philippians, were in fact the true circumcision. Paul knew that true salvation wasn't in circumcision of the flesh, but it was of the heart. It always had been. Moses spoke of it way back in Deuteronomy. Moses spoke about it. He says this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, <clears throat> and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that 
you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You look at the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the right response to that is like, I can't. I can't. Maybe a little bit here and there, but, but you know what the week was like, right? You know what your morning has been like? Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? The Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, hear that, parents, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. And here in that live, like truly live. Have joy, real life. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah this way. He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. I guess the Jewish opponents never read that verse. Look, those who are of the true circumcision live lives given over to God. That is a life of worship by the Spirit of God who enables us to worship God rightly. In fact, in Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2, not to mention a plethora of other places in Scripture, it teaches us that the gift of the Holy Spirit is to go out on all flesh, not just Israel, Jewish flesh, but all flesh, and that, that Spirit of God being poured out and given was the definitive sign that the new covenant was in place in Christ, not circumcision of the flesh. True worshipers, Jesus said, worship Him how? In spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Those the Philippians were to beware of promoted a religion of dead works, empowered by the flesh. But true believers, both Jew and Gentile, free and slave, male and female, young and old, worship God by the Spirit. And they glory in, because this is what the Spirit does in us. We glory and we boast in one thing, and that is Christ Jesus. And we put zero trust, zero confidence, zero dependence in the flesh. And that's what the Spirit of God does in us. And that's what he's doing in us this morning, uprooting this, this incessant desire to somehow make ourselves right or more right. So what is the Christian's ground of boasting? And when push comes to shove, like I know you know the right answer, but I'm saying when it comes right down to it, what is your ground of boasting? When considering our hope, brothers and sisters, place no confidence, zero confidence in the flesh, in your actions, in your obedience, in your family life, in your heritage, and anything else but glory in Christ Jesus alone. Yes, our, our works and obedience are vitally important in our walk with God, but our works and obedience never, ever, 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 ever add to the finished work of Christ in our place. We will, we will not get to heaven and stand before our Creator and say, I did this, I did this, I did this. I mean, okay, I believed in Jesus too, but I did this and did this and did this. What you've done is just like wrecked Christ of His 
righteous record of obedience in your place, and you've tried to take it over in your own righteousness? Genuine Christians will boast of one thing, and that one thing is Jesus Christ crucified in our place so that our sins would be forgiven and our hearts would be given over to Him by the power of the Spirit, and we would be called children of God, reconciled to our Creator by nothing less and nothing more than the sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God, King Jesus. All hail King Jesus. This is the message of Paul that he loves to share. He loves to repeat over and over and over again, and I thank God that he does because I'm so prone to leave the God I love. On Christ, you know how it goes, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all other ground, absolutely. Every little bit of other ground, every little piece of sand on this other ground, all other ground, all other rocks, all other buildings, all other whatever, sinking sand. That's the truth. And to believe anything else, any nuance of of anything else outside of Christ alone is to be buying into disinformation. And disinformation about Christ will lead you away from Christ, will lead you into self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and cause you to disregard the God who gave himself for you. Final point, there is wonder in gospel joy. Paul says, verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, look, I got more. Circumcised on the eighth day, as the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But Paul, Paul's just simply saying to the Jewish leaders in the Philippians, <clears throat> kind of all at once, he's saying to the Jewish leaders, you guys think you're hot? I'm hot. I'm the one who is the Jew of Jews. I'm the one who did all this kind of stuff. You talk about this? Don't you tell me what this is all about. If I had, con- if, if anybody has confidence in the flesh, I do, you don't. Now, I don't think his heart was necessarily in that specific place and angry, although he says in other places, he says, I wish the people that preach this kind of disinformation would emasculate themselves. Seems pretty strong. So kind of in one fell swoop, he throws shade at the Jewish leaders in Philippi, who are so much less than Paul in his ethnic and religious credentials, and he gives the Philippians a very specific example to consider regarding the message and power of the gospel. Look, if, if he could gain salvation, if anybody could gain salvation, Paul. If we're talking about this kind of pseudo-gospel, this false gospel, which is not a gospel, but it's what they were saying, right? He says, if anybody can do it, it's me. And I'm saying, I've counted it all as loss for the sake of Christ. There's no boasting in the flesh here whatsoever. Paul says in verse 7, look, brothers and sisters, whatever gain I had, and I had plenty of gain, plenty of obedience, plenty of heritage. He was a, he was this guy. Amazing, and he counts us all as, as lost for the sake of Christ. 
He used to feel very satisfied about who he was outside of Christ until he was given a vision of Christ. And he said, that is the gold that I long for. Everything else, fool's gold. Think about it. You had a big old plate of fool's gold that looked beautiful, like 15 times as beautiful as this, just beautiful. Somebody came to you with one pound of gold bullion. No thanks. I'll take that. It just doesn't make sense. But we buy into it regularly. For the Jews, it was foolishness, but for Paul and the Philippian Christians, it was the wisdom and power of God for their salvation. So much more to be said about this, but Cale is going to preach on this next text next week and get into more of the beauty of this gospel reality and the heart that's given over to this gospel and this wonder of gospel joy. Namely, Paul says to the Roman Christians, he says, for Christ is the end, not the beginning. He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. From Adam and Eve who sinned in the garden and tried to cover themselves before the eyes of holy God to the whole, <coughs> excuse me, whole, the, um, the whole Jewish religion that developed into an attempt to achieve righteousness before God to us today, who strive to earn God's favor and mercy through any work of our own doing, the struggle for acceptance that we have, the struggle of we want people to feel that we're important, we want glory, we want, we want to be well thought of, we want all this stuff for us to be, feel satisfied and feel joyful about something. We need to obey, we need to do this and do this for God to smile on me. So we're just so prone to try to earn God's favor and earn, but so, so rather than being content with earning God, with having, with having received God's favor, we try to earn God's favor and we try to earn favor with one another. So people pat us on the back, we feel good. When people don't, we don't feel good. The attack of our enemy, the enemy of our faith, from the very beginning, is to doubt the word and integrity of our Creator and to strive towards self-acceptance and sufficiency apart from Him. If you've lost gospel joy, you can 100% guarantee that you've bought into some level of disinformation and forgotten about the fact that you are 100% accepted in the Beloved. We're told things like this in our culture, specifically, it's nothing new under the sun, but specifically, and we've just heard it in so many movies recently, but, you know, I need to be true to myself. Be true to yourself. Out of all the things in the world, you know, I need to be true to myself. You don't tell me uh, who, what I'm worth and all this, and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a reality there, okay? But it's, it's disinformation. It, it causes us to move away from the God we love and find contentment and satisfaction, which is absolutely fleeting 100% of the time when we're looking for contentment and satisfaction in ourselves, trying to find ourselves. When 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, 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 God planned and utilizes the gospel of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit to say your identity is no longer just simply in yourself. It is in Christ 100%. And there's freedom. And so listen, if you are here this morning and you're trying to find yourself, try to be true to yourself, you're going down a wrong road. Because what you'll find is emptiness. What you'll find is meaninglessness. What you'll find in the end is utter destruction. And Jesus is saying this morning, come, come to me and find your true identity. Jesus, this is a guy named Jack Miller. Join, I really love this guy. He says, he's passed away now, but he says this, Jesus is our perfect righteousness. When we come to him, we need no other. The struggle for righteousness is over, and he becomes our reputation and glory. We need not fear to come to the sinner's place, for when we do, it's to cease from our own works, to stop trying to be what we are not, and admit instead who what we are. At that point, we accept Christ, our own righteousness. We are justified before God and enter into peace. This is God, God's basic blessing for us and the only way, the only true way of peace and joy. And so, you know, you think when you're, con- the work of the Spirit, you know, convicting us of sin, not just in the, the wonderful other things He does, but just like this reality of convicting us of sin and causing us to see the beauty of Christ and because we don't have to strive for our own righteousness, we just repent and trust in Christ. And there's a glory in that. There's, it's just an ease in repentance. Oh, we struggle though, don't we? To repent, to truly repent, to confess. We just don't want to, we don't want to be the guy that just constantly fails. And Jesus is like, why not? Come to me again and again and again. Gospel reality, joy in that. We don't have to earn our salvation, but we come to Christ, and the Spirit opens our eyes to see Him. And this causes Paul to celebrate in the wonder of gospel joy. It fills his heart. It fills his life. It fills his teaching. It fills his relationships. It fills his life of sacrifice. Why would he want to hold on to his own self-effort when he can rest entirely on the perfect record of Christ's righteousness in his place? Why would one settle for the fool's gold again of the dollar store when one could have the eternal riches through Christ now and then on the day when we walk on the streets of gold? The fact is that we're all prone to fall back into self-righteousness. Why, why do we argue until we're blue in the face, until, until somebody believes we're right? Why is it we're always, always striving to attain to some standard of perfection, either to prove ourselves, prove to ourselves that we're, we're good, or prove to others that we're good? Why, why are we so overcome by our desire to be respected for holiness and efficiency and, and, and leadership or preaching or, or housekeeping or parenting or school? Why do we obsess with appearing one way before others when we know that it's not the way we are in our heart of hearts? Is it not because we have fallen prey once again to the disinformation of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that tell us that we can't trust this gospel and we need to simply work harder or just give up? Perhaps you're in the midst of suffering in your life and it's been a difficult to find a difficult path to find any joy whatsoever. Perhaps in your sorrow you've become discouraged and you've become despondent, uh, despairing. 
this wonderful gospel message is something that we can lean on whenever we face discouragements or suffering. Michael Reeves says, if we forget that we're justified by faith through grace, every trial becomes a double trial. We increase our sufferings as we wonder if God hates us. We take on burdens that we were never meant to carry. The doctrine of justification lifts our burdens when we come to Jesus for salvation. And it also alleviates the weight of false guilt or false responsibility that can overcome us during seasons of difficulty. This is why Paul is convinced that there's always reason to rejoice in the Lord, even amid all the serious trials that he experienced. To have the gospel on repeat that tells him that he's a child of God, accepted and beloved, freed from the penalty and power of sin. And it's why we need to remind ourselves of the gospel continually. It's why it's going to be the main message that we preach throughout all this text. It's always going to come back to this. It's going to start at this and come back to this. We're going to sing about it. We're going to have the Lord's Supper each week. We're going to continue in small groups to remind each other over and over and over and over and over again because it's the greatest truth in all of history. It is our only hope. It is our best hope. It is our full hope. And it is the guarantee that we will one day be presented faultless, blameless before the Lord with great joy. And it should be, must be, it must be so in our hearts if we're ever going to tell other people about it. It's just more than simply rehearsing the content of the good news. Certainly not less than that. Um, But we're not simply talking of having the right information in your head, as vital as that is. Friends, we need the movement of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We need the movement of the Holy Spirit in our minds. That we might come to know that, not just sing it, but that we might know in our hearts that Jesus truly is worth everything. You you cannot come to that place just on your own somehow. It is the activity of the Holy Spirit that is going to lift your head up and cause you to look at Jesus and see Jesus as precisely who he is and understand what he's done. Jesus himself said this, when the helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And when the Spirit opens one eyes to see Christ, to see Him for the first time or for the umpteenth time, as the end of their struggle for righteousness, oh, the joy that floods our souls. Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord. It's not, a, it's not a command. It's not just simply a command. It certainly is a command. But it's not just meant to be just like, you buck up and you rejoice, Christian. It is a work of the Holy Spirit rising up within us that causes us to rejoice. Rejoice in what? Rejoice that this world is so great? No. Rejoice in the Lord. That's what the Spirit causes us to do. So whatever we're facing, whatever's going on in our country, whatever's going on in the world, whatever ever, ever, ever happens, we can rejoice because we are purchased and brought into the Beloved. Do you know anything of this joy? Do you want this joy? Oh, man, I want this joy. I got this joy right now, in this moment. I'm just super ecstatic about what Christ has done for me. Jesus cries out in John chapter 7. Here's what he says. 
If anyone thirsts, well, it says he cries out. So I don't know if he's crying or if he's like yelling, but it, let me just do it this way. If anyone thirsts, just to make sure everyone hears, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you feel dry this morning? This is the exact opposite of, this, of dryness. You feel dry and broken? Oh, Jesus says, come and drink from me. Not just, not just a mental ascent, kind of like, yeah, I get what he's saying. Just, I need more Jesus. I need more of Jesus. And friend, if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, he's calling you today to come to him and know this freedom and know this forgiveness, and experience this joy. Real life in Christ. But for those of you who have trusted in Christ, again, you bored, dry, crusty, unfeeling, lacking in genuine affection for Christ, may we never be generally content with our dryness. May we never be generally content with our spiritual mediocrity. Jesus compels us. He calls us to come to Him, trusting Him, and to be revived, and to know what a beating spiritual heart really is. And perhaps you might just be weary, and you feel empty, but when you hear the word thirsty, you're like, "Mm, I'm thirsty. I'm just going to tell you right now, that's the activity of the Holy Spirit in you. Because if not for the Holy Spirit's work in your life, you would not be thirsty. You'd be thirsty for other things. But you being thirsty for Jesus, man, that's the activity of your creator in your life. Now, Jesus calls you to come and to drink, to believe on him, and out of your heart will, not might, will flow rivers of living water. And John clarifies specifically what it is that Jesus is talking about here in the next verse when he says this, now this he said about the Spirit. Jesus does not tell us primarily to come to the Spirit to drink, but to come to Him to drink. And the Spirit's job is to give us eyes to see the glory of Christ and to cause then rivers of living water to flow out of our hearts. And so I say, do you thirst for Jesus? If you thirst for Jesus, it's the Spirit working in you, and the Spirit is going to answer your request, answer your call, answer your plea to, to cause you to see Christ, to give you more of Jesus, that your heart would be set on fire, that you would know that your settled faith is in Christ and Christ alone, and that great joy erupts out of you, and you can hardly contain it. We are in desperate, desperate need of freedom in Christ and joy in Christ. Christ. 